Welcome back for another week. Our learning is dedicated Lucy, Maya, and Rina D, or Fushlema Ratila Batya Bhaya Tova, Rahabigala Rahul Gika, Yudya Haiman Avidra Chaya, Shalom Chaya Sarah, Shimon Elka, Shadokum for all those in need, and a special mazel tov to my daughter Shira on her wedding. Okay, a special thank you to the Hollanders, Itzi Naomi, for hosting this week. So last time we were not able to finish um Perek. Vav. So we start off with Pasuk Lamed Gim. So all of Midian and Amalek and Bnei Kedem, they all gather together and they're in Emek Yisrael. And the Spirit of God overcomes Gidon and he blows his shofar and who follows him? Of course, the family of Aviezer. Rashi points out who's the family of Aviezer. That's his own family. Yeah, of course, his family is going to follow a law. But the, the Rambam points out in the Mor Nevuchim that the Ruach Hashem is the lowest level of Nevuah. What does that mean? It's a certain intuition, a certain gut feeling of what to do. It's divinely inspired. But when we think of Nevi'ah, we don't think of people that have like, it's a good idea comes into their head. We're thinking of people on a very, very different level. But I wonder if the fact is the Ruach Hashem, when it comes over him, his family joins him, probably because they have no choice. You come home and you're like, God told me to do this. And your kids are like, well, that's crazy. But okay, I have no choice. And then your cousins and your aunts and your uncles and parents and all that. That's the initial group that joins on. But why do other people join afterwards? I think that the Ruach Hashem that he had, he gave him the confidence, and that confidence inspired other people to believe in Gedon. He sends messengers out to all of Menashe. We welcome back the old map from Sefer Yoshua. Gedon is in um, Menashe, right in the center of the map. He's in Amek Yisrael, right around there, if you could see my mouse. So who does he call? Who does he call? He calls Asher, Zvulun, and Naftali. Those three Shvatim right there. Interesting that the Psukim don't have him calling Yisachar. Now, I'm not sure if the reason why he doesn't call Yisachar is simply because Yisachar wasn't interested. I don't know. Or perhaps it could be what we said at the beginning of Sefer Shoftim. Yisachar was just not really considered much of a shevet. They never conquered their land. So they were almost a non-entity within their own land. That said, it's also be, it then becomes unlikely that they are going to be the ones to join. But Menashe, Gidon, under his leadership, he grabs Zulun, Naftali, and, uh, and Asher. And then what happens next? Now, the, the, the question is also, why only these? Now, to think about this, let's let's remember that where does Midian live? Midian lives to the south of the Dead Sea, but we said that they likely came in through the area just above the Kinneret. They're going to come in through there, and then they're going to ride through Menashe, and they're going to come down the coast. Now, Don also didn't do a very good job of conquering their land, which means that really the only Shvatim that would be in route from Midian coming in on the on the old biblical highway, the Via Maris, as they're going down towards Egypt, would be these tribes, Naphtali, 
Zavulun. Asher, perhaps even Yisachar is not even in root. Maybe as they come down, they're cutting through there as the mountains go and going along the coast. It's what, what to think about. Gedon says to God, I don't know. Am I really going to be the one to conquer? Do I have the strength? Can I really make this happen? He says, if that's the case, that you really think that I'm going to do this, then I ask you the following. I have wool in the granary. If there will be only dew on the giza, on the on the, the wool, the entire land will be dry. I'm going to know that I'm going to save the Jewish people. So what is he saying? He's saying test number one is that what? I'm going to do what I did. I, I have, I buy the granary, I buy the entrance to the silo and there's wool there. The dew, right? The mountain dew is going to only be on the, um, on the Giza and the land itself will remain completely dry. If that happens, then I believe that um, I'm going to be successful. Now, interesting what, what's going on here. What does he say? He says the following. He says that he wants a test. So Rabbi Hatton points out that he might have taken Baal out of his home. He is now named Yerubal. Why? Because he destroyed the idols and he destroyed the Asherah. So he's neged Baal. He's against Baal. But even if you can say that he took Baal out of his home, Baal is still inside him. In his heart, he still is impacted by Baal. And as such, what happens? He is based on the whole pagan culture of I request signs. I need all kinds of, of things to know that I am going to be successful. Okay, so now what happens? That's part one. So, Pasuk Lamed Chet. And that's what happened. He gets up in the morning, and he, he touches the Giza, and he squeezes it, and he's able to fill a whole bucket of water from the, um, from the Giza. Um, interestingly, Remmer points out this whole thing, the, the test, the, the conversation with God doesn't happen during the day. It's in the morning that he's proven to be correct. And in the morning, he realizes that what? This is God. God has chosen me. But it's at night where he has the conversation with God. It's at night where he's curious as to whether, in fact, he's going to be able to be the leader of the Jewish people. Says Rav Remmer beautifully, night is reflective of the Tufa, of the era that he lived in. He didn't benefit from his times because there was no clarity for him. He lived in a time of darkness. And that is what happened. So Pasuk, Pasuk Lamed Tet. So God says, uh, so Gidon says to God, listen, I'm sorry, don't be angry at me. You might recognize these words. These are very similar to what Avram says to, to Hashem when he's arguing about stone. Says, I want the opposite. The Aretz will be completely um, wet. 
with the towel and the, the giza, the, the wool will be completely absent of the two. That's what he says. Bayas, Elohim, Chain, Balayla, who? And God does it at night. And that is exactly what happens. The whole thing is very bizarre. What exactly is going on here? What are we supposed to make of it? So I think to understand that, we have to try to understand what are the two pieces in his, in his test. On the one hand, he has the giza, the giza, the wool, which represents sheep. And on the other hand, he has the land by the granary, which is represented by the wheat. What exactly are they? It says by Michael Hatt, the beautiful idea. He says it's the message of the wool and the earth. There's a conflict between him. On the one hand, on the one hand, you have the, the, the Giza, which represents the nomadic tribes of none other than Midian, the marauding troops that are attacking them. And on the other hand, you have the, the wheat, the wheat, which represents the people of Israel, those that are farmers. It is the inner tension that exists between the two of them. And that's what's going back and forth in Gidon's head. Who's going to win? Will it be the Giza? Or it will be the wheat. But the question, though, is why we need two tests. And let's be honest with ourselves. It's actually not really the second test. It's the third test. Because he tested the, with, the, uh, with the angel. And if that wasn't enough, really, spoiler alert, there's actually a fourth one to come. The question is, who else had four signs? Who else do we know that had four signs? So we know that Moshe had four signs. Moshe had four signs at the snap. Question is, are signs okay? Is it a right to ask God for signs? So we we say in Kabbalah Shabbos on Friday night, we don't want to have stubborn hearts, like a meriva when we tested God. They tested God. Doesn't sound possible. We don't like to test God. So is testing God okay? Why is Gidon asking all of these questions? So here's an interesting possibility. Perhaps the answer is that it's a generational thing. See, every generation asks based on what they, they are. If you have a generation like Yoshua, there weren't a lot of questions in God. Why? Because there's absolute clarity and such stellar belief in God. What if you have a, a generation like Gidon? Gidon himself is the leader that's reflective of the generation that he's in charge of. All of Gidon's inner doubts are reflective of the fact that the people themselves have inner doubts. It's a generational thing. They don't really believe in God, and Gidon himself is in the same boat. So that's one possible way of looking at it. And in that way, Rabbi Hatton says Moshe's signs are for his generation. He believes. But they don't. Gedon is a sign of his generation. Just like they have great doubts, Gedon himself has great doubts. And so that perhaps is one way of looking at it. But maybe there's another possible way as well. See, Rashi says, if you read Pasuk Lamed Zion carefully, you notice that what? There was a lot of Tal. 
fills up a safe al-mayim, an entire bucket full of water. But he wanted al-kala aretz chorev. He wanted the entire land to be dry. That did not happen. Because there is a bris that is cut with the tal, and that bris is the tal will never be absent from the planet. And so it could be that one way of looking at it is that Gidon does sign number one, and wait a second, didn't happen. The way to prove that I was going to be the authentic leader of the Jewish people was that the Giza was going to be wet and the ground was going to be dry, but in fact, it doesn't happen. The Giza is wet, but the ground is also wet. So if that's the case, he needs to ask a second time. He's going to ask another time for the second message to see maybe the second time it'll happen. So it goes the other way around. And then the other way around, what happens? The ground is wet. The Giza is completely dry. And therefore, it actually happens. That is one way of looking at it. Another possible way, which I, I believe is similar to the Malbim. I learned a new feature today in, uh, in uh, PowerPoint. Is that Gidon is the Tzemer and the people are the Aretz. What does that mean? Gidon is one small entity, but he's Malay. He's full of mitzvot. The Eretz, on the other hand, it's hard and it's not worthy because B'nai Yisrael really don't worship Hashem. So Gidon is doing two signs because he wants to know two things. Are we going to win on my behalf? Or are we going to win on behalf of the people as well? So in sign number one, it's to try to authenticate that he is deserving. And in sign number two, it is to also validate that the people are deserving as well. Gedon is hoping that the Jewish people, even though they're worshiping idols, he wants to hope and believe that the Jewish people externally are in a bad place. But deep in their depths, God recognizes that they are wonderful people that also have the potential to be great as well. So let's pick up now with Parasit. Rubal gets up early, he's Gedon, and all the people that are with him. And where are they? They, they camp down here on Ein Charod. Hatanach's map is amazing. Whereas Ein Charod is a spring. Again, this is somewhere in Enek Israel. So what happens? They, uh, they camp there. And, and the Machne Midian was up north where and they're in the valley. Now, this is not this is not unlike what we normally see. The Jewish people are fighting, and what happens? They are on the in the mountain, they're higher up, and the enemy who is much bigger, much stronger, what are they? They are outside. They're not afraid. So what happens? God says to Gedon, you have too many people here. There's too many people in Ein Charod. I'm not, I'm not willing to allow you to go with a fighting force like this against Midian. Because otherwise I'm afraid. Well, that's going to happen. The Jewish people are going to say, ah, oh, this is all us. The reason why we beat Midian is not, it's not because of God. There's a lot of us. And we outsmarted 
we outplayed the opponent. So pass again. So he says, we got to whittle down the people. We'll get to that in just a sec. But before I do that, I want to ask a question. Is Gidon strong? Well, let's see. We meet Gidon hiding in the wine press. Clearly, he's not a warrior that's willing to take on the Midianites. He's afraid to kill the bull and chop down the trees by himself. He needs his people, a minion of people from his town. He needs a sign even after the Ruach Hashem envelops him. And one sign is not enough. So on some level, it comes out that Gidon doesn't appear to be very strong at all. But what is his strength? That is where we need to dig a little bit deeper. I hope we'll have a better appreciation of that as we watch the rest of the period. So again, Pasa, we're up to Pasa Gimel. 32,000 people. And God says there's too many people. How do you get rid of some? So they do what, our, what the Torah tells us to do. You're supposed to make an announcement. If you're afraid, if you don't feel comfortable going to war, either because you're not a brave person or because you recognize that you have certain Averos in your hand, God says, no problem. We don't want you there. Because you're going to flee. And the beginning of the Jewish people losing the battle is when they flee. Yashov v'yitzpor. Should go back to the yitzpor meharagilad. So what does it mean, yitzpor meharagilad? Says the Abar Benel beautifully. Sharatzalomar, v'yashkim k'day latik eitzav v'lamud aleyem. Shasher yirtzu v'ashuv v'yashkimu v'aboker v'yashuv v'lo yiru adam v'shuvam v'lo yachimu. That they should go in the morning. Why in the morning? Because in the morning is a time that, what? That everybody's not out. And if, you, if they leave early in the morning, no one will know that they are leaving. And that's good. Why? Because it's embarrassing. I don't want to be the guy that couldn't go out to war. People are like, oh, see? Meryl's afraid. He's not brave. He's not willing. All kinds of things like that. Nobody wants to take it upon themselves. So it's cool. Safra. Early in the morning, you sneak out. And then nobody knows what happens and nobody knows who leaves. So that's great. So by Yashav and Am Esrim Shnayim Elef, 22,000 people are afraid. But there's still 10,000 left. By Yom Hashem El Gidon, Hashem says to Gidon, Oh, the Amrab, there's still too many people. Go take them down to the water and I will purify them. Now, this picture is not a good picture, I don't think. But it's always how I perceive this. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly happens here. And I think, think, I think, I think I have a better understanding of it. But the thought is like this. What happens? I, this is the best picture that they have online, but I think it's actually mistaken. So in the morning, in the morning, who I tell you, should go with you, we'll go with you. Those I say should not go, will not go with you. So God has him bring the people down to the water. Hashem says to Anybody that will drink with his mouth from the water, that drinks the way a dog drinks, He's the one that goes out to war. 
and anyone that that that, uh, that drinks on his knees will not be able to. So now, if you take a look at this picture, you have four different groups of people here. You have the red-shirted people over here and the blue shirt over here. So the three guys over there are in some state of bowing into the water. And those people are, are what we would say, not able to go out to war. And this guy in the blue, it looks like he's somehow he's drinking differently than them. He's not putting his mouth all in the water. He should go. Now, the most of the Mepharshim say that the reason why he could not, these people could not go out to war was because they were bowing. And if you bow, it is as though you are bowing to idols. It means that you're conditioned in that way. And God says, I'm sorry, I don't want people like that. The problem with this picture is that if you take a look at this guy, doesn't he appear to be doing the same thing? He's also bowing on his knees. So how is this that different than anything that we saw until now? So. Let's try to understand it a little bit differently. So what is the, what is the deal with a dog drinking? So if you take a look at, a, at this picture over here, that is a dog drinking from the, the river. Google Images, if you want to understand this, you just put that in. The dog that's drinking, he actually is not bowing at all. In fact, the, so I found that also in a little bit of research, it seems like the dog has no ligaments in his front leg. So the dog really doesn't bend it. it. Either goes down and it's like in a sitting position or it's up. There's no real in-between, which I don't spend enough time with dogs to know that, but it seems like that is in fact correct. Says the Ralbag. The Ralbag says, so what exactly is going on here? So the people that, um, that were drinking um, by bowing down, it shows that they're lazy. They're not willing to put the effort to sit down, they just are jumping in. They're maybe they're lazy, or maybe they're in, uh, impulsive. Not sure which one, but those are not good soldiers. That's what the Ralbag says. Das Mikra says something completely different. He says actually that the 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 piece that's similar to a dog is that the same way the dog does not use its legs at all, doesn't bend down. It was the same thing with the person, but the person was actually sitting down, like a, that was the shepherd's pose to drink. You would sit. And then you would cup the water from the river and then put it in your hands and drink like that. What exactly um, is, the, is the difference? So the Yalakaku, Kekelev, the drinking like a dog is just to tell us that the same way the dog drinks in a way where its mouth is like, like that, they're doing the same thing. It's a motion like that, as opposed to where if you immerse your face in the water, you could drink in one motion. That is um, how to better, best understand this, uh, this test. And how many people drank that way? 300 people, that's the final number. And everybody else was on their knees to drink. With these 300 people, you will go out to war and you will win. And everyone else will go home. Now, when do they go home? It's not clear when they go home. But one thing is for certain. The Midianites don't know that the Jewish people have whittled down from 32,000 people to 300. Midian knows that there were 32,000 people in Ein Charod by that spring. And now the people of Midian are getting ready for this battle. Like Chut Seidana. Okay. By Pasuk Chet. 
By Khut Seda Amdiya Dam at Betro Forte, a call Ishis El Shilahi so lava social Ishazik Mahamedana Yalu Tahabe. So they um they take all the three hundred men, hold on to all the Seda, all the food, okay, all the food that belonged to the thirty-two thousand people they had, and also the chauffeur, all the chauffeurs that they brought. And each and then they go home. And these 300 men are there. And the Jew and the uh, the Midianites were below them in the Amah. Now, just I, I think this three the food and the chauffeur says the Khomatanach. It sounds like from all 32,000 people they had brought 300 chauffeur and jugs and whatever. So now the 300 men that are left, they've taken the, they have enough chauffeurs for all of them. And then it's on that night. God says, it's yours. You can win it. This is proof that God recognizes where Gidon is holding. He says, if you're afraid, but if you're afraid, I want you and Fura, who's your servant, I want you guys to go down to the Machine. Go to the camp of the Midyanim. Listen, hear what they're talking about. And that'll give you chizuk. So they go down to the camp of the Midianim. This is what they hear. Now it's interesting, it says, they, they guarded the, the weapon, the ones with weapons are on the outside. It says the Abar Benel, now, not everybody in camp is going to be armed. You've got the cooks, you've got the animals, you've got the supplies. Those are the inner parts. But the outer part, the outer ring is going to be your fiercest and bravest soldiers. Those are the people that they're going to encounter. So from listening from a distance, what they hear is going to be the message of the bravest and the strongest. Remember, they're like grasshoppers. The, the number is beyond. There's so many of them. Gedon hears one person, one soldier talking to his friend. I had a, I had a dream. And there was a sleal, uh, some barley cracker. I could look at the uh, cartoon up there, right? Whoa, that is one giant cracker. A barley cracker, the Mitzvah the Sion says it's like a pita. It's chararaf, Imagine if you've gone to Israel and you bake pita, because that's what you do when you bring your kids to Israel at some point. On top of that, like, circle-like oven, you put the, the flour and it turns into this cracker-like, pita-like dough. He says, in my dream, there was a giant cracker. And what happens? It came and it knocked over my tent. And the tent caved in. His friend answered and said, that is the sword of, of Gidon ben Yoash. God has given in the in your hands, given them 
us, we've been given to them in their hands. They're going to conquer us. Now, we don't even know that Gidon has a sword. In fact, I don't think we ever really find out that Gidon has a sword. What's amazing, though, if I had to point out, is that Gidon did not believe in himself. The Jewish people probably didn't believe in themselves. But you know who, you know who believed in them? It was the Midianites. Those people believed that the Jewish people could win. Sometimes I think we are our greatest enemies. We don't recognize our strengths. We don't realize how strong we could be. There's an amazing story that Rabbi Wine shares that at, uh, at a certain point in time, they were trying to raise money, I believe, for Theodore Herzl's family after he had died. Maybe it was before. And they, they invested in a bunch of companies. And what, what was what, one of the companies that they invested in? They invested in a uh, company in, uh, in Israel. That was like a throwaway because most of the investments were made abroad. And what happens? Turns out that when all the other, when the British Empire fell, what was the one investment that truly was worthwhile? It was the investment in Israel. We don't believe in ourselves sometimes, but our enemies do. And that, says Gidon, is, that, that is Gidon's problem. But the, the non-Jews, they believe very strongly in him. He hears the dream and the interpretation. He bows down. He prostrates before God. We got this. Comes back to the, the camp of the Jewish people. He says, get up. We are going to win. He divides them into three groups. In each group, every soldier has a shofar. And an empty pitcher. Perhaps that's where the supplies had been kept. And inside the pitchers were torches. Sorry, missed one point. What's the message exactly of this, uh, of the dream? What is it trying to say? So perhaps one thought is that the cracker is barley and it represents agriculture. And the tent represents the nomadic existence of Midian. When the cracker rolls over the tent, what's its message? It's telling Gidon, you're going to win. Remember back at the beginning, Gidon's inner conflict was, what is going to win? The Giza or the Eretz? He's not sure. But here he's told definitively, it is the agriculture. It is the land that is going to win. And so what happens? People are divided up into three groups and they go out to war. He says to them, I want you to look at me and follow my lead. I'm going to come to the edge of the machina. We're going to come up to Givat Moreh, up north. Whatever I do, you should do also. I'm going to blow the shofar, me and everybody that's with me. And then you're going to do the same thing. You're also going to blow your shofar. What is going to be our rallying cry? So they come, his hundred men, they come to the edge of the camp, 
at the beginning of the Ashmored Hatichona, um, right? At the at one of the watches um, in the night. So, which one it is? It's the middle one. So you talking right, right smack in the middle of the night. As the guard is changing, and they they blow the shofars and they they shatter the kadim that are in their hands. They've got in their right hand they have the shofar, in their left hand they have a torch. They scream out to the charev Tashem and to Gido. Of course, they don't have the sword. And all the people, what happens? They get up and they are absolutely terrified. And they're screaming and they're running. And they keep blowing the shofar. There's so much noise. And the chareh, the one midnight, goes against the others and end up killing each other. Ad Betashita, and they go and run to Betashita, which is much closer to where the Jewish people were in Ein Charev, Tzreirata by Tzreira, Ad Sfat Avel Mechola, and they go from there until Avel Mechola, which is the next one down, Al Tabat, which is by Tabat. They scream out to all the people in Naftali. In Asher and from Menashe, they come chase after Midian. We have to catch them. And he sends a message to all the people in the mountains of Ephraim saying, Go down and take over the water crossings, says the Radak. Why? We don't want them to be able to cross over to the other side. It's not the Jordan. Because later on in the Apostle, after it says it's but, but what are they saying? The the place that crossed over the Jordan to the other side, got to cut it off. Why? Because then you actually uh, encircle the, 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 the Midianite army that's trying to run away and you can destroy them. This was what the Jewish people did in 1967 down in the Sinai. They crossed over and encircled the Egyptian army. And they were ready to destroy it, except that they were their hands were forced to let the Egyptian army go. But that was the goal. The goal is you can completely destroy the enemy. The enemy has nowhere to go. And then what happens? And they capture the two generals, Orev and Ze'ev, Orev and Tzor Orev, they kill Orev in the Tzur. Orev probably got its name because he was killed there. It says the Radak. And they kill Ze'ev in Yekev Ze'ev. They bring the head back up to show that they had captured it. So the enemy is destroyed, or at least neutralized, and the Jewish people live another day, and they end up winning the war. And all is going to be good. Of course, the story is not quite over yet. We have more to unpack next week with Parikhet. But before, before we close, I just want to end as we're ending Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is just behind us. I want to share with you what I believe is the amazing message that 
Tishabav has that Sefer Shoftim shares. Except that tonight, in learning this parak, we're seeing actually it flipped on its head. Rav Salvechik spoke in the, uh, on the kinos and describes the very first kino that we say in the morning of Tishabav is Shabbos. Everything ceased. Nobody actually expected that the base on Mikdash was going to be destroyed. When the first Mikdash was destroyed, it came as a complete shock. The Gemara stories of some, some cities that were still busy rejoicing and they were happy. The, on the other side of the city, people were already um, mourning the fact that the base of Mikdash was destroyed. That says Salavechik is the very nature of the, the exile. Nobody saw it coming. Even Yermiahu, when Yermiahu leaves, the base of English wasn't destroyed. God says, go back to Anatot and buy, redeem the field of your uncle. He goes there. He doesn't expect that he's going to come back. That was the very nature of the way the exile happened. No one saw it coming. They were completely shell-shocked when it happened. A lot of Sefer Shoftim is reflective of the same thing. The Jews seemingly don't see it coming. But I think what's important is to know the same thing is true for the redemption. No one saw this coming. In fact, if you were the people in Gidon's time, you would not have expected that at all. And yet, it came. And who came, Who did it come with? 300 people. All of it is so very, very, very shocking. We asked the question earlier, what is the strength of Gidon? The strength of Gidon is not that he's so brave, but that he believes that God will take care of them. And that is something truly remarkable. When everybody else is in doubt, in shock, in question, it's Gidon who maintains the belief that God will somehow make this all work. And the earth Hashem, just like Gidon, saw his Geula, we should be Zohar to see the Gula Shlema of the Parabiyamena. Thank you again for joining us and keep walking in the ways of the prophets. Have a great week.